0: Are you struggling with managing documents with your clients this tax season? Are you like most firm owners and don't have the time to implement an entire client portal, communications, and workflow solution for your firm? Wouldn't it be great to have a way to securely exchange documents with your clients using tech that your firm probably already has, keeping your team and clients from having to learn something new? Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor, Sweet Files, later in the episode.
1: I mean, and that becomes a real part of like, uh, you know, your job as an accountant, like when I moved from public accounting to working for like Fortune 500 companies, like some of the decisions we were trying to make is, do we make decision A or decision B? And you're doing a risk reward, you know, analysis. And I'm so like, We have to be able to do this in our profession, but we don't seem to perform that same analysis on the profession itself or the process of trying to become part of the profession. And I think it's a huge gap to where it's like we're not eating our own dog food.
0: Coming to you weekly
2: from the OnPay Recording Studio, this
0: is the Cloud Accounting Podcast. Podcast.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Cloud Accounting Podcast. I'm Blake Oliver. And I'm David Leary. And our special guest this week is Terrell Turner, CPA. Welcome to the show, Terrell.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
2: Yeah, great to have you on. Where are you located in the world? I am just outside of Charlotte, North Carolina. Okay, okay. Well, then you are neighbors with the former comptroller of South Carolina, (laughs) who just uh, resigned uh, after a $3.5 billion accounting error. I can't wait to talk to you about that. But before we get into the news, I think our listeners would love to learn a little bit about you, what you're up to. Terrell, I think the first time I ever encountered you was via your YouTube channel. You are a prolific YouTuber. What kind of videos are you making these days? So
1: these days, we're trying to get creative with just taking current events and tying it back to the business lessons that you're finding in those. Plus, we run a podcast um, and we capture the video of that as well. So that that's kind of where we're living at the moment. Awesome, and,
0: and it's small business focused content mostly is what you're...
1: Yes. Yeah. So we're, we're, we're focused on small business owners. I mean, because we're just we're trying to take... What we know in accounting and finance, and make it relatable and practical for small business owners.
0: And are you doing this as like, hey, this is just a way for us to get clients, and this is our our call, our business card, and this is going to help you get clients in our door for for my practice and, and engagements I take on, or are you really like, hey, I'm building a YouTube channel and a YouTube following, and I'm going to be a I'm going to be a content creator and like that's the kind of thing, or is it a mix of both?
1: So it's a mix of both. I would say originally it just started off because when I was working in corporate, a bunch of friends would ask me questions and I'm like, I can't answer everybody's question. Let me just put the answer in a video and you can go watch the video on your own time. And that's kind of what it started off as. And then I just saw that, hey, there's some traction here. Then when we started the firm, um, it became a way of like, hey, people were finding us that way. And then now it's like, you know, we get I get speaking engagements because people see it and stuff like that to where it just continues to evolve and have so many different use cases.
0: And you offer virtual CFO services. Is that kind of what your practice does? Do you do bookkeeping? Do you do tax? Do you do anything else?
1: Yeah, so we focus more on bookkeeping and CFO services. Okay. And we really focus in on law firms. Now, I always say this, if there's a non-law firm that wants to work with us, like it has to really make sense for me to say yes.
2: Why law firms? Why Why focus on those guys? Because I've heard both pros and cons and a lot of cons to working with lawyers. Uh, I myself did a bit of legal bookkeeping and the trust accounting was quite intense and difficult (laughs) because those attorneys never seemed to want to actually follow the rules that I set for them.
1: (laughs) You know, I, I think that's probably what made it a little bit attractive to me is because there aren't that many people or accountants or bookkeepers really focusing on that area. And the more I kind of dug in, because I started off doing consulting with a couple of law firms. And I realized, like, I understand your business model, like your business model is not that different from mine. So I understand the problems that you have. And the hurdle for me was finding a way to explain things in a way that they would take the action that they need to make the processes work. And once I figured out how to do that and I was like, plus, I mean, they make a lot of money so they can afford the service and they get it because they're hired to support their clients. I'm hired to support them. So it's like they see my service as a necessary for their business where I'm just like, this seems like a win-win. So we figured out the processes and decided like, Hey, this is where we're going to focus.
2: Let's talk about the news, shall we? Let's talk about South Carolina's comptroller (laughs) and the $3.5 billion error. Yes. You heard that correct. Not 3.5 million, 3.5 billion with a B. Richard Ekstrom, CPA, will resign effective April 30th. He has served as the state's comptroller general since 2002. Uh, and by the way, a comptroller, as I understand it, is just a fancy name for controller, according to Greg Kite, host of the Oh My Fraud podcast, who uh, has given himself the job title of comptroller uh, just to be pretentious. So here's the story as reported in CPA Practice Advisor. Uh, Apparently, he inflated the state's cash balances for a decade. Eventually, it reached $3.5 billion. So we're not talking about some sort of like complicated estimate that went wrong. We're talking about bank reconciliations (laughs) being completely off. And the state thought that it had $3.5 billion more than it actually has. In his resignation letter, he wrote, over the course of my time in public office, I have taken great pride in the responsibility trusted to me. I have been humble in my approach to the job, an attribute I hope our constituents have recognized and will remember.
0: (laughs) That's not what they're going to remember about you. (laughs) Now, now this, uh, this has been bubbling up in my newsfeed for the last two months, probably. Little versions of this, yeah. And some of the uh, they were going after him hard because he he is a CPA, right?
2: I think so. Yeah. They were like
0: they were like you're. They were basically making fun of him being a CPA. Like they were coming after him that hard. Like you obviously don't. You have these credentials that you shouldn't have. They were kind of these other politicians. You know, politicians can get. Yeah. Um And yeah, it's this has been going on for a little bit. But like, how? how
2: what? What actually happened here? What yeah. actually happened? Yeah, so uh, the important thing to note is that this doesn't actually affect state spending because no actual dollars are missing. They just, I guess, thought they had $3.5 billion more than they have. It's going to affect the South Carolina bond rating potentially. So it could increase cost to taxpayers by increasing the interest rate that the state has to pay when it borrows money. Uh, Let's see if we can figure out what exactly happened here.
1: I saw some reports on this um, and it was mentioning something about uh, several years ago when they changed over to a new operating system, there was some stuff that didn't get mapped properly. So things just got double counted and, and, and it's just been a lingering issue for like 10 years. It's kind of from some of the other reports that I saw to where I'm just like, 10 years, this issue has been going on. Like, Where were the auditors in this process
2: for 10 years? Right. So they were double counting income, as I understand it, or double counting deposits. And yeah, it goes on for 10 years. And there was some young accountant who came in that figured out the problem and solved it, uh, as I understand. I don't know know her name, but yeah, it's kind of amazing. Yeah, where, where were the auditors? This is a true where were the auditors moment, right? Not not like Silicon Valley Bank where there's sort of like a debate as to where were the auditors, you know, and we could say they did their job. I mean, in this case, I don't even know how this is possible. Yeah, I so, mean, it
1: was interesting because when I saw that, I was like, all right, let me go back and look at the last audit that they, you know, because they release it and they share it, and uh, so I looked at the audit report and I read in there for the 2022 and 2021 that the financial statements are fairly, you know. There are no no misstatements, and I'm just like no material misstatements, and I'm like, how are they gonna explain this in the next you know audit report? Because I'm like 3.5 billion is material. Yeah. I mean, when you look at their
0: budget, is, is this right? a case where like you know like how fraud like starts out teeny and then then they do another fraud to cover up? Not not saying this was a fraud, but it's kind of that same mindset of like, oh, that's kind of a bad mistake. I don't want to fix it. And alert people that that happened, and then it just compounds, I, right? And then next, you know, it's three and a half billion dollars because you never, nobody wanted to get fired when it was a hundred thousand dollar mistake,
2: right? Yeah. And well, it's, it's this compounds. is the state. This is the state version when you know undeposited funds just keeps building up in your client's account for <laughs> year after year after year, right? Until it's a material amount. So I, that's got to be what it is.
0: This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Suite Files. I'm guessing that you're probably already paying for Microsoft 365 and use Outlook, OneDrive, Word, and of course, Excel daily. Wouldn't it be great if you could just use this existing tech stack that you already know and trust to work with your clients more securely, efficiently, and collaboratively? sweet Files has everything you need to manage your client documents, nothing more and nothing less. And because Suite Files is built on Microsoft 365, you, your team, and your clients already know how to use it. With Suite Files, you can easily create and edit documents, including PDFs, and get digital signatures from clients all safely and securely. By using Microsoft 365 folder system that you're familiar with, Suitefiles makes it simple for your team and your clients to upload, store, retrieve documents, including the ability to work with documents offline, see version history in case you need to roll back changes to a doc, Outlook integration, custom branding, PDF annotation, and PDF merging. And just announced, SuiteFile now works with Carbon. Your Carbon contact and organization data will sync into Suite Files, allowing you to auto-populate all the business templates you use in Suite Files learn more about using sweet files to solve all your document management needs and for advice on tackling the talent shortage including the top five tips to find qualified workers head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash sweet files that is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash
2: s-u-i-t-e-f-i-l-e-s Well, we got to move on. We got too much news to cover. So, David, I want to talk about the bonus interview we've got for our listeners this week. We spoke to Linda Weedle of the Minnesota CPA Society, or rather, Minnesota Society of CPAs. And we had a great conversation with her about what Minnesota is doing to create an alternative pathway to CPA that involves four years of college instead of five. And they're replacing, or they want to replace that extra fifth year of education with an optional extra year of work experience. So if you don't want to go get that master's of accountancy, if you don't want to do 30 credit hours that have nothing to do with accounting just to satisfy your requirement in Minnesota, you may soon be able to get uh, through that way if the bill passes. Yeah. And in a letter to the ASCPA and NASBA, Minnesota said something that really resonated with me. They said they surveyed their members, which is something that AICPA and NASBA has never done about this issue, and 85% of MNCPA members in public accounting support additional pathways to the CPA. 85%. It's overwhelming. Incredible. And another... Go ahead, David.
0: I was going to say this ties back to even the previous story. That's the situations we're going to have where they can't get auditors. You can't get CPAs. And then stay, and so that's what we're starting to see. Uh, nonprofits, municipalities, other businesses in Minnesota are struggling to get work done that's needed. And we're going to see more examples of the South Carolina thing. Not that I'm saying that was exactly the talent shortage, but I can't well, imagine that more of that not happening if we have a talent shortage.
2: Yeah, exactly. More of it will happen, right? Yeah. That's the problem. Um, They also reported a stat that uh, CPA exam first time applicants dropped 15 to 25% after the 150 hour rule went into effect. So that gives us an idea of what might be able to change if we get rid of the 150 or not get rid of it, but create an alternative pathway that's 120, maybe we'll have more CPA exam candidates. More people would be willing to go and, and try to be a CPA. Terrell, what do you think?
1: You know, I, I listened to uh, several of the episodes where you guys talked about this and even uh, the interview that you guys did. I um, forget the gentleman's name. But one of the obvious. Yes. One of the obvious things that stood out to me is just this is is less about like, hey, this practically makes sense. Like this rule is actually making people better, you know, CPAs, better accountants. It's more of. We worked really, really hard to get this approved. And if we change this, we don't think that we're we're going to lose parity amongst all the states. And I think that it's a horrible way to look at it. I mean, I, I get it when, you know, your job is just to, you know, protect the profession or the, the license itself. But I, I do think, to your point, I mean, you got to actually talk to the people in the field and not only talk to the people who are actually – doing the job and doing the work or trying to become CPAs. But also you got to look at the demand because, I mean, if we're running into such an extreme shortage, maybe we need to change our strategy. And and I don't think there's any, been anyone who's been able to provide a convincing story as to why 150 hours makes you a better CPA. Um, I, I just never heard anybody explain that.
2: And the best argument, I think, in, favor of 120 is that more and more states are moving to allow candidates to test at 120 hours. And if you can pass the exam at 120 hours, then why do you need to go and get another 30 semester hours of education? You've demonstrated your knowledge in accounting by passing the exam, right? So I think that is actually going to change a lot of opinion. It's going it's to make the 150 seem more and more pointless. When we've got people who have already passed the exam and the only thing they're doing now is paying money to colleges to go get more education.
0: Yeah. There was an article, Blake. Uh, I might get you the link here and so you can pull it up. But this is on NASBA's site. So this is a super long article um, on NASBA. This is uh, written by his name is um, Richard. They didn't B- sign the B- article C- though.
2: So <laughs> this is funny. I saw this blog post too, David. <laughs> I'm going to put this up on the screen here. Um, so. His so this is on a, here. Yeah. This is a blog post that appeared on uh the National Association of State Boards of Accountancy website, but it ha- doesn't have a date and it doesn't have a name. But you figured out who it is, right, David? Yeah.
0: So his name uh is he is Richard Resig. I could give you
2: his link to his profile on Res- the national- Resig, I think. Resig. He- he's the chair. He's the chair of the board at NASBA, right? He's a
0: chairman and he's also on the committee for the pipeline as well. So regardless, he's basically writes this long article. He's arguing, you know, for 150. But he ties it back to uh, discussions in his notes that he had for meetings in the 90s, in 1990. And a lot of it's the same stuff. The the profession is changing, expanding, and it's becoming increasingly complex, declining enrollments in accounting programs. Um, It's indicating that the profession is becoming less attractive. So these are the similar... Thoughts that were taking place in 1990 that are now, but he goes on to say, but that study at that time, the conclusion is that there should be a, more hours, more education. So the, so the same vibe that's kind of today was happening in 1990, but different conclusion on how, what should be done.
2: Well, my understanding is that like in 1990, we had a huge surplus of accountants, so they were looking for ways to reduce the number of people becoming CPAs. And adding more education is always the easy way to do that, right? You create more barriers. But now we're in the opposite situation. And
0: then the study also emphasized, which is interesting, that passing the CPA examination should not be the goal of accounting education. Instead, the education should be on developing analytical and conceptual thinking skills. (laughs)
2: Well, see, that's the that's the strange thing. So you can develop analytical and critical thinking skills without studying accounting at all like me. Right. I, I went to yeah. a school and got a liberal arts education in music and I learned how to think critically. I didn't have any of the accounting skills. So I had to go back and learn all that. But yeah, they're just mixing it all up. Yeah. And, and uh, what's
0: scary about this article is it goes deeper in. He Uses a sentence that says we need to protect mobility at all costs. And I feel like every time politicians say things like that, this is like a decade hindering society issues. When people have their, that creates blinders, right? They go down the wrong paths. It's really scary that suggests that. And basically his argument though, is about more education. And this is the craziest part of the whole thing. His argument is like, well, they need more education so that they're gonna have the skills for tomorrow. arguing that the colleges are actually preparing people.
2: But we all know that that's not the case. CPAs come out of school and they're totally unprepared to actually do real work in firms, right? Terrell, like, do you, everyone I talk to says, like, you don't know anything when you come I mean, out of when school? I
1: mean, when I came out of school, I mean, it, the first two years, you didn't know anything. Like, you were, it was yeah. like the first two years of working in public accounting was just like the real education I needed to figure out how to put this stuff in practice. So, yeah, I don't think the school really prepares you to actually be ready to do the work.
2: So one of our listeners here, Monica, says, I don't agree with getting rid of the 150 rule, but it would be great if the last 30 hours could be in graduate-level accounting courses. However, I think the bigger issue are the salaries, especially starting salaries in the field, as well as the dreaded busy season time commitment expectations. I think that is where we should focus rather than lowering the education requirements. And I want to say, Monica, thank you. I agree with you that salaries are the bigger problem, that if salaries were higher, people would be happy to go and do a master's in accounting. The problem is they aren't, and we can't just magically make them go higher. And I think it's also important to recognize that accounting is an enormous field. There are millions of accountants in this country, and not everyone needs a master's of accountancy. Yes, maybe if you want to go big four and you want to go do really complicated stuff, For multinational Fortune 500 companies, yes, the master's makes sense. But if you want to stay in your city and you want to work at your local city government and do accounting, something like that, where they're having massive shortages, it's not necessary. You don't need that to be a controller at a city. I mean, I doubt the extra fifth year of education would have helped South Carolina comptroller, (laughs) you know, not make that $3.5 billion error, right? That was a basic Air. I,
0: so I, I have a blog post, or not blog, I'm sorry, a job posting for USA Wrestling. You know the Olympic team, like for controller, and it says masters and accountants or CPA.
2: <laughs> like, right. like,
0: you know, it shows, like the market does not care.
2: <laughs> like like there's like, there, there's such a need, right? <laughs> there's such a need for accountants at all levels that I, I think the problem is that we've raised the bar, uh, and I wouldn't even call it a bar. I'd say we've raised the difficulty level through the masters. And it's really designed for the big four, but it's not designed for every other firm. You do not need a master's in accountancy to be a good CPA for 80%, 90% of the businesses in this world. It's just not necessary. So
0: I, I gave you a link. It's the Executive financial executive podcast. It's a two-minute clip. Uh, they basically had an hour-long podcast. It might have been a webinar about the pipeline problems in the, in the exodus. But, but there's a professor... And he has a story to tell, and it's shocking what comes out of his mouth, if you play that clip, when it comes okay. to salaries. This is
2: from the Financial Executive Podcast? Yeah, it's the green All one in right. the bottom. Here end. we go.
3: The pass is, the requirement for a job in accounting says that you have to have a degree in accounting. Many of the other... um uh finance is definitely one of them, is not necessarily looking for just finance majors to start in their finance career. Um, They have a little bit more flexibility. So how this kind of translates for me is you would be surprised at the number of students that have at least two majors or a major and a minor versus when I went and got my undergraduate in accounting. And so I had a a student that was an engineer. He was interested in FinTech. Many engineers went into finance in the past, but he was at an inflection point between whether he should use his engineering degree to go into engineering or finance. And so he came back and said he landed on engineering. His initial pay salary was $72,000 with an undergraduate degree and a $10,000 bonus. I don't think that we should chase the salary, but I think that we should find the candidates who may have an interest. Maybe they minor. We have lots of MIS with accounting minors. They're not necessarily accounting majors. If they have the right skill set in terms of technical skills um, from some of their undergraduate coursework, we can then move them in the direction of picking up the 150 credits by getting a master's degree in accountancy. Their undergrad wasn't in accounting, but their master's degree is accounting. And now those students can now become CPAs. So I think at the point of the employers, um, maybe broadening who you're actually looking for may be helpful because you may be able to teach some of the transactional skills in the beginning.
0: And that's Dr. Wayne W. Williams. He's an associate professor of accounting at um, Temple University.
2: Wait, so David, explain to me what, what the point is. Well, so like if, if professors have this mindset that,
0: so this accounting student is gonna go make more money doing something else. And this professor's basically saying like, we shouldn't chase salaries. We should not try to pay these people more. But at the same time, he's trying to say like, oh, find these people that have other skills and make, get them to become accountants. But if they have these other skills, they're gonna wanna be paid more. Like it's right. just but but if professors don't have the mindset that their students should be making more in the accounting industry, if accounting professors don't believe this, how's this ever gonna happen
2: yeah, and, I guess and maybe
0: just, what he's
1: probably proposing is go find someone who has a major that pays less than an accountant and get them to become may, an yeah accountant. maybe he's
0: saying maybe he's suggesting that yeah maybe- maybe he's lower the uh the salary bar maybe i i I don't know it it's just the for me, it was just frustrating listening to the, the, the mindset of don't chase a salary. He gives an example of a very good possible accountant who chose not to be an accountant because of salary. Uh, I mean, stop. it seems
1: like the, the, this embarrassing thing because, you know, to be a CPA, you have to, you know, you have to pass the, the BEC section, which is, you know, economics. And the basics of economics is looking at supply and demand. I mean, that's something that all CPAs have had to look at. But when it comes down to actually applying the concept of supply and demand to the accounting profession, it's like we drop the ball on it to where I'm like, yeah, I, we're supposed to be good at this, but for some reason we can't <laughs> figure it out.
2: I, well, you know, economics was not part of the curriculum in accounting for me at my program. So maybe that's the problem is like the people teaching accounting don't understand basic economics, supply and demand. And, and what really frustrates me is people who say, like, the 150-hour rule has nothing to do with the, the supply issue because uh, we just need to increase salaries. And I say, well, cost and price are related. So if you want to increase the supply of accountants, reduce the cost to become an accountant, and you will get more of them. Yeah. That's just basic economics, right? And master's programs can cost up to $100,000 for a year if you consider opportunity cost and – the tuition cost. So you're talking about not a small amount of money. I mean, at least 20% more for somebody to go get five years instead of four. And if the salary is the same or less than something they could do for four years, what are they going to do? If they're smart and they're actually thinking about ROI, which they should be if they're going to be an accountant, they're going to make the calculation that it makes sense to go do something else. And I don't understand why our leaders have such a hard time with this. Yeah,
1: I mean, and that becomes a real part of like, Uh, you know, your job as an accountant, like when I moved from public accounting to working for like Fortune 500 companies, like some of the decisions we were trying to make is, do we make decision A or decision B? And you're doing a risk reward, you know, analysis. And I'm so like, we have to be able to do this in our profession, but we don't seem to perform that same analysis on the profession itself or the process of trying to become part of the profession. And, And, I think it's a huge gap to where it's like, we're not eating our own dog food.
2: So well said, Terrell. Could not have said it better myself.
0: This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Zoho. I'm sure you've heard of Zoho before. We've probably even mentioned Zoho CRM or Zoho Books on this podcast in the past. But do you really know about Zoho? Did you know that Zoho has been around for 26 years? Did you know that Zoho has 85 million users? Did you know that Zoho has over 50 applications? Did you know that Zoho offers one subscription to 50 applications? Did you know that Zoho apps are integrated with other Zoho apps? Did you know that almost all Zoho apps have Zapier connections? Did you know that some Zoho apps can connect directly to QuickBooks Online, Xero, and Sage Accounting? Did you know that Zoho offers an entire suite of solutions to run your firm, including a CRM, expense tracking, bookkeeping, a full office suite, a support ticket system, and workflow automation? Did you know that Zoho offers a suite of solutions for your clients' bookkeeping, including bookkeeping, inventory, invoicing, subscription management, and a checkout app? Did you know that Zoho has an accountant's program? Did you know that Zoho advisors get free access to eight Zoho applications and a dedicated account manager? If you want to learn more about becoming a Zoho advisor, head over to Zoho. That is Z O H O. Zoho, a one-stop solution for all business needs.
2: So I want to move on, if that's all right with you guys. I just want to talk about Silicon Valley Bank briefly because there's a point that has come up over and over again on Twitter and in the press that I think hasn't been analyzed properly. And that is this concept that the Silicon Valley balance sheet time bomb was sitting in plain sight, that this problem at Silicon Valley Bank, if you just read the financial statements, it would have been obvious to everybody. And so therefore, accounting standards and the auditors are not at fault here, that they did their job. They showed the true market value of these bonds on the balance sheet, and it's just up to investors to have looked at that. Now, investors didn't, right? Nobody saw this coming except maybe a few guys on what what's that site? Mo, um not Motley Fool, but uh Seeking Alpha, right? Those guys who like dig in and find stuff in short companies. There were a few guys who saw this coming and one guy who started tweeting about it like in January. But other than that, but
0: it's like the weather. Somebody's always going to have some prediction
2: and somebody always going to be somewhere
0: somebody somewhere will be right on a prediction somewhere.
2: Right? So, Right, right. It's true, but these guys actually saw it, and so I just yeah. want to like, I want to answer that question. Like, well, was it really in plain sight? Right when when we talk about this, and so let's actually go to the SEC website. I, I search for Silicon Valley Bank ten K. Right, this is the form that you file with the SEC. So if you ever want to look at financial statements for a company, you want to go directly to those financial statements. You can just search for their ten K and find it on the SEC website. And this is the ten K for. Silicon Valley Bank for, I hope I got the time period right, December 31st. Yes, 2022. So this is where the bank balance sheet was as of December 31st, 2022. Now, the issue around Silicon Valley Bank, for our listeners who you know have not been following it, is basically very simple. They had bonds that they had classified as hold to maturity, massive, massive amounts of treasury bonds like tens of billions of dollars of treasury bonds, uh, mortgage-backed securities, actually mainly mortgage-backed securities. And in a world of rising interest rates, the value of those investments were declining over all of last year. But because bank management is allowed to classify some of those assets, some of those investments as available for sale, and some as hold to maturity, they don't have to recognize the losses on the holds maturity bonds until they sell them. So all you have to do as a bank manager is say, "Actually, I don't intend to sell that, so I don't have to recognize the loss." And this is why it was a surprise to all the investors because when liquidity became tight for SVB because of all these deposits outflowing, they had to sell the bonds and they suddenly had to they suddenly had to recognize all those losses. And that is what sparked the bank run. Is a, a close to I think it was $1.8 billion in losses that they recognized. They'd already economically incurred it. They just hadn't said that they'd incurred it yet. It hadn't shown up on the PL. So let's go see where that information was, okay, in this filing. I'm just going to start scrolling. And, you know, there's 181 pages in this set of financial statements. And there's a, just, wow, look at all those footnotes. We're not even to a PNL and l or a balance sheet yet. Page 19, 21, 23. Here we go. Keep it's going. It's going. I see it. It's impl- well, you know, we'll- I've set aside my whole morning as a financial analyst to look. Oh, what's this? We've got now. Okay, management. Oh, no, we're still on MD&A. Uh, so this is still discussion. Still, Still notes. Okay, here we go. Wait. What is this? This is a summary of performance. Okay, there's the HTM securities. Oh, nope. Still at cost. Okay, still not still not seeing the fair market value. Let's just keep going. Is this a balance sheet? No, this is something else. This is analysis of net interest income changes due to volume and rate. Okay, we'll find it you eventually. Know, I, I
1: laugh when you said that because like one of one of the roles that I have was in investor relations for a company. And I used to have to go through this with the Wall Street analysts. So like they would pretty much going through this. And I was like, you know what? The average person who doesn't have experience going through these 10Ks, you're not gonna find information in there unless you already know where to look for it. Because the average person would never go through this much detail. Like Most accountants have never actually read a 10K before.
2: I know, right? Unless your job is creating them, you've never even seen one. And uh, to be honest, I've never really even dug into them before because I don't work with public companies, right? So I'm just saying, okay, as an investor, I want to go find it. Uh, We're still going, right? So here's (laughs) HTM Securities, but these are all at net carry value on the investment securities uh, footnote. So here's available for sale. That's not what we're looking for. And for Let's those of you going.
0: not on the live stream, Blake is only at page 67 of his scrolling, if you're listening um, in your car. Yeah,
2: and I know, I've know i actually went and I found it before, but I forgot what page it's on. So this is really sort of like, if you're an investor, if you're trying to figure out what's going on, where is even the balance sheet? We don't even get to the balance sheet until like, I might just have to like control F this thing because I'm, I'm not... <laughs> <laughs> We're still going. What page are we on I, I now? I still can't figure out if you're
0: just doing this to be sarcastic or if you're really trying to show us something in this. Okay. Here we go.
2: Okay. <laughs> item eight, consolidated financial statements and supplementary data. We are on page 91 and we finally got into an actual financial statement. Okay. Well, you're not there and, yet. <laughs> uh, so here's the consolidated balance sheet. Okay. Here Okay. Consolidated balance sheet. Asset. Uh, held to market. Okay. Here we are. Here we are. Line Three under assets it says held to maturity securities at amortized cost and net of allowance for credit losses now in the column for 2022 it says 91 billion dollars in the title of that line it says in parentheses fair value of 76 billion 169 million dollars so so if you if you read that little item in parentheses you would know that actually those bonds aren't worth 91 billion. They're worth like 15 billion less. Oh, by the way, that 15 billion unrecognized loss is greater than the equity of the bank. So the bank is underwater. The bank is insolvent at December 31st, but nobody realized it because of the accounting treatment. And you'd have to actually like look at this footnote uh, on page 95. And now Granted, if you go down to page 125, you will see a schedule, and the schedule shows – let's see this. The schedule shows – okay, here's the schedule of the HTM Securities, and you can actually see now on a, on a chart, you can see, I think, the is – this, is this it? No, here it is. <laughs> see? See how difficult this is? <laughs> there, there it is. There it is. Negative $15 billion in unrealized losses. On page one hundred twenty-five of a one hundred and eighty-one page financial statement.
0: So on December thirty first, twenty twenty two, they were already insolvent. And I'm assuming these are as an audited financial statements. So these were are the auditors truly statements. to blame for this? Like is it is it the well, auditor's responsibility to say publicly that a bank is insolvent?
2: Well or? so they weren't insolvent on a gap accounting basis. I'm saying they were insolvent on an economic basis, that if the bank had to liquidate that day they would not have enough money to pay out all their creditors, including their depositors. Because if you look at the, if we go back to the balance sheet, which is, we have to find it again. Sorry to make you scroll, yeah. <laughs> uh, where is the, well, it's just, we have to find the equity line.
0: But I think
1: that, to David, to your point, I think that just ties back to, uh, you know, accountants are not trained to think forward looking or that critical about it. They're just saying, hey, Based on Gap, Gap says the value of this is ninety-one, you know, billion because they're going to hold it to maturity. Like they're not trained to think, well, what if there is a bank run or hey, what if they do have to liquidate it and they do take some losses? Just like that's just not part of your typical accountant's training or even the audit process.
2: Okay, so I was I was not quite correct. (laughs) I was wrong. Their total equity was sixteen billion. But they were very, very close to being underwater, like super close, right? And Terrell, I agree with you. Like auditors, accountants, we aren't supposed to look big picture like this. We aren't trained to look big picture like this, right? We're just supposed to say, do we follow the gap rules? If you had 200 hours of education, though, maybe we, can, maybe we could train that <laughs> into you. I, this is a critical thinking thing, right? Like this is, this is actually step back and look for a minute and see what is going on right? And the reason I bring this up is because I want to say it was not obvious. And it's obvious it was not obvious because if it was obvious, then these investors, these big investors who had a big stake in SVB would have realized what's going to happen, right? And and they would have done something about it sooner. All of these unrealized losses piled up over the course of 2022. I mean, there were three sets, four sets of financial statements that would have shown this happening. But because management was allowed to say, we're not going to sell this stuff, so we're not going to recognize the losses, they were able to hide them in plain sight. Now, I would argue that this is pretty much buried in plain sight, because who has the time to read 181 pages of financial statements? And it's what's wrong with accounting. Accounting is just way too complicated. Every bank has 181 pages of financial statements, it would take you like three or four hours to read all of them. And there's th- thousands of banks in this country. Like There's no way that anyone can make informed decisions. So, and so they all just look at the bottom line, but this number was not in the bottom line. This number was not in earnings per share. It was not in net you know, revenue. And, and so when it did hit that, that's when everyone freaked out. So, that's what I'm trying to say. So,
0: so the accountants Obviously, there's a lot of finger whack. Shame on you, auditors. Shame on you, accounting industry, for not catching this. Should the accounting industry be pushing back, be like, no, shame on you, politicians, for having laws that allow companies to make decisions like this to not write this off properly or disclose this expense?
2: Well, I think this is the fault of GAAP, which is ultimately the accounting profession's responsibility, right? Because the SEC has delegated accounting standards to FASB and the Financial Accounting Standards Board decides if companies can do this kind of stuff. And so they should, instead of doing stuff like making lease accounting rules and revenue recognition rules, they're like 600 pages of guidance, maybe actually focus on simplifying accounting standards so that this information is actually useful and we're not reading 181 pages of footnotes in order to like figure something out. This is useless. This is why financial statements have become less and less useful over time and why, as Baruch Lev says in his book, The End of Accounting, investors only use financial statements for 14% of their decision making. When was the last time you guys looked at financial statements like this to make an investment decision? When was the last time anybody actually looked at the financial statements to decide whether or not to buy a stock? Very few people ever do it, including really sophisticated investors with lots of money. So. This this actually goes back to the talent shortage, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that
1: from I would say from from my my brief time I spent in investor relations, where I noticed that the very large institutional investors would be relying very heavily on the Wall Street analysts. Like so, during that time, like I was in investor relations, we had twenty one different analysts from different banks who would analyze our business and they would comb through the financial statements and then they would make their forward looking projections of where they think the price is going to go of the stock and these are some of the things that they would dig into but even then like with something to this level like not all analysts would be able to catch this and these are often people who have a you know degrees in maybe engineering or finance and they are deeply quantitative and analytical but even them, a lot of times I would notice like there would be stuff that they would miss to where I'm like, based on, I agree with you, based on the way Gap is and just the, the level of detail you got to dig in to get to this point, most people are not trained or aware enough to find this.
2: Yeah. And we got to remember a lot of these financial analysts, you know, they're really smart and they, they, they come out of school, but they're like in their 20s. They don't have a lot right. of experience and they are overworked, just like the mm-hmm. auditors are. And so that's why simplification could help. And and I'm not saying that you know, I, I'm just saying like let's let's try to get rid of 80% of the information in these financial statements. And the way that we can do that, right, the information that doesn't matter and just focus on the 20% that does is by getting rid of the volume of estimates that we make in accounting, right? So much accounting is estimates and there's also a lot of ways to manipulate earnings so if we really want to have good accounting we need to remove the options for management to manage earnings and this is a perfect example allowing them to decide what is available for sale and what is held to maturity basically says like yeah. you get to decide if you're going to recognize the losses on your investments it's up to you right and you can manipulate your earnings that way all day long and, and that
0: goes to like the bigger issues like the street judges everybody a quarter quarter to basis. People are motivated by the next quarter's numbers. Their bonuses are, are driven on the next quarter's bonuses. There's not that long-term view of a business and the health of the business. Because no. this current CEO is not responsible for the business a decade from now. They're responsible for next quarter's results.
2: And, and pumping up the stock price, right? So they yep. get that big uh, bonus. Mm-hmm.
0: This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Keeper. By combining client communications, file review, reporting, and your task management, Keeper has everything you need to run your bookkeeping or cast practice. Keeper is an all-in-one app that allows you, your team, and your clients to easily collaborate to make your monthly close as efficient as possible. Starting with a beautiful custom-branded client portal optimized for bookkeeping work, your client can answer questions you have about uncategorized transactions, allowing you to categorize and automatically post them to QuickBooks Online correctly, all without ever leaving Keeper. Via the month end file review feature to surface transactions that may not be posted correctly and by providing the perfect customized report that each client may need, Keeper can highlight the value that your firm provides clients. Keeper's built-in task management ensures nothing falls through the cracks and it includes time tracking so you can see where you and your team spends their time. With Keeper's 1099 manager, you can easily review each client's list of vendors, email address, physical address, tax ID, and the amount paid, and from the same screen, even request W-9s for any vendors that you're missing information for no more jumping between screens or browser tabs keeper has a very affordable and clear pricing model that starts at only eight dollars a month learn more about why thousands of bookkeepers and accountants trust keeper to manage their month end close and to get 20 percent off your first three months by using code cap 20 head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash keeper that is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash k-e-e-p-e-r
2: So this goes back to our discussion of uh, the accounting talent shortage. Nathan said, just had a community leader ask if we know anyone who wanted a nonprofit director job for $90,000 a year. Then we joked how hard it is to find somebody and how small firms are no longer auditing. There's a good chance audits will no longer happen for nonprofits based on the fact that only one firm is still providing the services here. (laughs) That's where we're headed, right? Firms are not going to be able to get audits. And then that does
0: causes market confusion. Right, and I'm going to transition to this audit thing. But did, did you see the Jim Jordan, a uh, Republican representative from Ohio, talking about how it ha- so the Trump hush money case, right? Stormy Daniels he, he paid Stormy Daniels. They're calling this now a bookkeeping error. Like the these words <laughs> get just bastardized, like and taken over. Like any chance to like throw accountants and bookkeepers and auditors and CPAs oh. under the bus. Now, yes, Blake and I. Feel like we're hard on the AICPA and these things, but this is just like inside family hard. But like we really defend it externally, right? When you see these things coming on. But going I'm, back
2: I'm to just, the- I'm just, I'm sorry, David, I'm just yeah. picturing the bookkeeper in the Trump organization, you know, saying like, hey, this payment to Stormy Daniels, right? And they're like, oh, I have that video. Uh, well, how should I classify this, you Mr. CFO? You know, how should I classify this hush money payment? Yeah.
0: And tying this back into like this misunderstanding, and then how bad it is if the nonprofits can't get audits, right? Or there's misunderstandings. So this was an article, and a, this is a, out of Boston. And just long story short, because I don't think it's the part of the story I want to bring to the show, but it's like two nonprofits that are maybe tied to like improving neighborhood parks or something, right? They're they're kind of being accused of fraud a little bit, or where's this money being spent on? They're not. There's two nonprofits, but I read the article. And what I'm really seeing what this is, this is just lazy bank feeds accounting, is what it is. So they they actually say, for example, an entry may list an expenditure of $1,100, but it literally does not say what what was purchased for the money. There's actually a column in the ledger labeled line description, but it's blank and has been left since blank (laughs) since January of 2017. And they give these other examples, but you start reading this, it's really um, even reimbursing employees, right? It's bank they're just pulling down the bank feed. It says money was spent, it's categorized, but it's not saying what it's for. And this goes like in general, there's just misunderstanding of what we do as a profession and what bookkeeping is. And mm. you know, this is lazy bank feed accounting. I don't think there's any fraud happening here. It's just people are lazy. They're not putting at prescriptions. You know? And auditors, I don't even know if an auditor, if it's their job to justify. Like if you audit a nonprofit, unless the board of directors ask. You're not going to care that they didn't put descriptions, right?
2: I I, I don't know. I mean, and this just goes back to the whole problem with auditor independence, right? Auditors don't want to find problems because it just creates more problems for them with their client. And until auditors are hired and paid by somebody else, they're always going to defer to their client in the end. It doesn't matter how much ethics training we get. Follow the money, right? If I'm getting paid by you, I'm going to represent your interests more than the public's interests. That's simply it. So, and I'll stand by that. Hey, David, I want to toot our horn a little bit because your favorite politician, Senator Elizabeth Warren, has written another letter complaining to the PCAOB about sham crypto audits. Yes. And we have been talking about this. We have been talking about this for months, if not years, that these. I know she's a listener. These attestation reports, (laughs) these attestation reports, are totally useless, and they, uh, they, they confuse the public because they're not real audits. And finally, it's getting some attention. I mean, none of these letters seem to actually do anything, but it's kind of nice to to know that shady audits. She actually used the word shady audits. uh, Sham audits,
0: sham audits of crypto firms.
2: Sham audits conducted by
0: PCAOB registered auditors mislead the public. And it's a very finger-wagging letter. And then the PCAOB writes a letter back. And I would say that these letters are shams. <laughs> it just as <is> the <laughs> audits are shams because these letters don't actually do anything. It's just a lot of finger-pointing. It, it's grandstanding in the same way the crypto companies grandstanded that they had audits from these yeah. companies. These are, she is a legislator. She could do something about this. Instead, she just writes letters, spanking and finger-wagging at PCAOB who writes a letter back to her because there's no threat. What's well, right her back.
3: Good
0: point. The whole thing is ridiculous.
2: Sorry. Very good point, David. No, no, I think you're right. Um, moving on to the, to another story. This one's more of a fun story. JP Morgan Chase's nickel bags turn out to be full of stones. Imagine if you're the auditor in this situation. So apparently a while back JP Morgan Chase bought a bunch of nickel that was being held at a warehouse somewhere. Oh, like, and- like this is the actual raw <laughs> material. Like, yeah nickel,
0: okay, not <laughs> like, not nickels, okay, got it no
2: nickel, mm-hmm. got right, it. so they purchased bags of stones that were thought to be nickel, like nobody opened up the bags and checked to see if there was any nickel in them <laughs> until finally the London metal exchange did poke in and realized that the bags were full of rocks when they were weighing them, and so I just think this is amazing. can you picture that like you're the you're the auditor in the warehouse, and you go to open one up to check you know you're just like, oh, you know doing my doing my job. And you discover that, like, you know, over a million dollars is just gone. I really wonder. Like, it was fifty metric tons of nickel that was replaced with stones. Wow! This is gonna like, can you imagine how much metric tons? Fifty metric tons. That's a lot. Like, did they right? not That's like, check any of it? <laughs> well, super you wonder, organized crime. <laughs> this
0: is yeah, did this they is the take out like
2: one bag at a time? You know, like, I, I, I just, this is fascinating to me. Of course, and you know, the funny part is um, this one point three million dollars of nickel which represents 0.14% of the nickel inventories in the world uh, just disappeared. And, of course, it's like a rounding error for Chase, right? It's probably immaterial to them. They bought the bags years ago, and they just figured it out. Wow.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So this could have happened years ago. There there may have never been nickel from day one, right? Yeah,
2: possibly. Possibly. Never nickel, just bags of rocks. I mean, it it
1: could have been, like, the greatest heist of all time. Like, originally it was nickel, but slowly over time someone just replaced it with
2: rocks. (laughs) Just filling, filling, bringing, like, rocks in their pockets to work. Every day. Every day. Just a little bit of nickel. (laughs) Well, David, I think it's time that we got to app news. Yeah. So, my big story in app news this week is open ai is connecting chat gpt to the internet and this is either going to be the best thing that ever happened to us or it's going to be the end of the world so if it's the end of the world none of this matters so i'm just going to focus on the the good part which is basically uh that first of all actually let me just stop for a second say first of all if you are not using chat gpt go sign up for it you can use it for free And if you pay 20 bucks a month, you can use GPT-4, which is insanely good and valuable. And people are already using it to do tax research. Uh, Paul Armstrong on Twitter, he tweeted, I have to be careful and verify what it tells me, but ChatGPT is already helping me prepare returns. If I want to fact check myself, it's way faster than using Google and Word, searching through IRS instructions. And he uh, put an example of a question he asked to GPT-3 do 17 year olds qualify for the child tax credit? And then it gave him a great answer. And then he said, this was different in 2021, correct? And then it clarified based on his question, whether or not it was different in 2021. And yes, you do have to fact check this and it's not always totally accurate, but it's a great way to get started. I, myself did it asking a question about business uh, deduction of, you know, mileage versus actual expenses. And I said, give me a list of pros and cons. It did a pretty good job. People pointed out that it wasn't quite accurate with luxury vehicles. But, I mean, we're saying, like, I'm saying 95% or more of the information was was great. And then I dug in after that and asked specifically about that, and it gave me the correct answer.
0: And to summarize and rewind here, Blake, when you say connecting to the Internet, so in pre- even a week ago, I think there was a demo with ChatGPT4 where he actually had to manually upload some IRS guidance. And then you could ask questions about it. So are you saying it's just
2: now connected and it's there? So GPT, or I should say OpenAI, the company that makes GPT-4, which is the latest version, has in alpha released plugins. And plugins allow you to connect other apps to OpenAI's GPT-4 and thereby get to other data that's not in their database, which... Their database that it was trained on only goes up to 2021, I think September of 2021. But now through these other apps, the API essentially, you can get to the internet or you can get to your databases. And so a great example of this is Zapier. Zapier is one of the plugins that I cannot wait to test. I'm not in this yet. I haven't gotten approval to use it, uh, but I'm on the wait list. And as soon as I get through, I will try it. You can connect Zapier to OpenAI And then you can ask questions of OpenAI or issue prompts. And it can, through Zapier, access your Notion databases, for instance, and modify them, access information, do whatever you want to them, like it's a user. Okay, So this is incredibly powerful, because you're no longer having to copy-paste information into ChatGPT in order to work with it. You can just give it access to information that you've already put into a database. And that could, potentially through a plugin, be the open internet.
0: I have a question, I guess, with both of you being CPAs when it comes to disclosure, right? Because I'm, I'm thinking it's an app like Canopy that can go and retrieve people's transcripts, right? And could they possibly, those transcripts now upload in ChatGPT and maybe I can interact with ChatGPT. Who knows what the use case might be, right? But yeah. is it, are you going to have to start disclosing to your clients that you're you're doing you're using ChatGPT? Because it's kind of a weird, like you're handing data over. It's, it's just
2: different, the relationship. Yeah. that's a good question. Uh, I mean, so I would say ahead.
1: from a, an accounting standpoint, I mean, I don't know if like if it's a requirement from an, like, an accounting standard, that seems more like a legal question or maybe like an ethics question of just having to disclose to your you're taking personal information from your clients, having to disclose to them like, hey, here's what my security procedures are. Now, if you're put if you're loading it into, you know, chat GPT or some type of open A.I., then you better have really good cybersecurity insurance because if anything gets hacked, I mean, if I'm a lawyer and I'm coming in and I'm suing you and I see that, Hey, you loaded my client information into an open AI, like, yeah, I'm going to add you to the lawsuit because you could be the leak.
2: <laughs> Yeah. Well, so in my engagement letters, I've always had a blanket um, provision that says I may use third party apps for your data including your accounting, financial, personal data, and that by working with me, you are agreeing that I can do that and I'm not liable. Now, of course, whether or not I would actually get sued, yes, I mean, you always can get sued, right? So you better have the insurance. Uh, but to me, you know, it's not really any different than if I'm putting information into QuickBooks Online if, I, if I'm then letting OpenAI access that information, assuming that I've done my due diligence and OpenAI says, you know, we're not going to store this information and mine this information, right? I, I We should probably look at their terms and conditions. I think they, in a recent update, said that they no longer use user prompts to train the data set, like which means they're not ingesting what you put into ChatGPT, into their database of, you know, material that the AI can access. So... We should confirm that though, because if they do, you know that would be crazy. Like, you wouldn't want to connect OpenAI to your practice management solution and then have it like ingest all of the social security numbers of all your clients, right? <laughs> and then tell other people what their social security numbers are if they ask. That would so, not be a good thing.
0: So, so then, what is the word of caution on this? Then we're we're on this journey because like, it's going so fast. Is it, but we're really truly in running with scissors experimental phase, like, and people need to really proceed with caution. It's easy to get excited about these things and I'm gonna use this in my practice, I'm gonna do this, but is it probably we're not it's really not there yet, like from a thought out and baked process. I mean technically yes for somebody like you or I, but if you're not really not conscious of the risk, like maybe dial it back a little.
2: Well I mean what I know is that a lot of CPA firms will say uh, we're not going to touch this until we've been issued guidance on how to proceed. And okay. if you if you say that, you're not going to touch this for years because that's how slow those things move. So you kind of have to make a decision. It's a risk-reward sort of thing. Um, yeah. And, yeah, maybe some data you're okay with putting in there and some data you're not. And you just have to be careful about that in your firm. Yeah.
1: One quick way I think that people can – like if you're running a firm that you can probably, you know, get some kind of perspective on this is – Whoever you use for your errors and omissions insurance, and if you have cybersecurity insurance or some type of insurance over, you know, if you're hacked or whatever, is ask your insurance company, if we do this, will this be covered? If the insurance comes back and says, no, if you get hacked and something happens, this makes your policy void, then you kind of got an idea of like, hey, this is a bigger risk than we thought.
2: Yeah. One way to deal with it is to make sure that the only thing that's going into the AI is anonymous information, right? That there's like no names, no identifying information. So for instance, um, you know, lists of bank statement lines. If you, you could, you could actually, I I did this, you copy paste like a list of a hundred bank statement lines and ask it to uh, categorize those according to a chart of accounts. OpenAI can do that and it can do that really well. I'm not putting in whose bank statement lines those are right? So as long as it's not identifiable, I think you're at less risk, is my feeling. And I wouldn't say that this is a reason not to use it at all, because the problem is, like this is going to become a huge competitive advantage. And here's where I think this is going to affect accounting. Now that we can use OpenAI with our own databases, with our own software apps, if it can connect to Zapier, it can connect to OpenAI, then that means that we can automate a ton of manual work. Um, I, I think that actually most of audit could be automated. All the ticking and tying, all that work that is really mindless, could be completely automated by AI within a matter of years. If the AI can access the transaction level detail and pull uh, pull transactions and, you know, I mean, I, I don't see why it can't. It can already write better than I can. <laughs> I, I mean, I, it, it writes, it well, writes content better well, than a human. Per being. second by far. Yeah. You can't keep It's no, it, out, it, what takes it you improves. A half
0: hour. Yeah.
2: I, I put something it. that I wrote that a I think minute. is great into it. And I say, please improve this. And it comes back with a better version. It is wildly intelligent. So I don't see why it couldn't do a lot of that stuff, assuming that we can get the data in. And that's been the problem is you can only put so much in to that chat window. But now if you can give it access to a database, you can tell it, you know, okay, here's a database of transactions. Um, p- please, like, what is, what is something that an auditor would do with that transaction? They say, like, you know, pull a random set of transactions, right? And let's run some tests. I don't see why an AI couldn't run some basic auditing tests or mm-hmm. do ca- cash confirmations
0: you could upload all the 10Ks and say, which banks are solving?
2: <laughs> and maybe that's the what's going to end up happening is that our financial regulators aren't going to actually simplify accounting. We're just going to end up using AIs to find those little time bombs in those financial statements. Maybe that's what will happen. Yeah. So, I, mean,
1: so- I think that that's probably just going to be the result is I don't think the financial regulators are going to be – able to create the rules that are going to provide the level of protection that they talk about it's just people are going to have to get smarter and more you know intelligent about how we're making decisions because the regulators just don't make rules fast enough and one is the people making the rules they don't understand the problem that they're trying to solve
2: yeah well we got time for one more thing david can, should I play this video about Microsoft Loop or do you have something else? I I that's think the more...
0: workflow the Zero Workflow Max announcement is probably more Nobody important.
2: cares about Workflow Max, David. I don't know anyone who uses <laughs> like, Workflow I, Max. I,
0: I, that's why I'm confused. That's why it needs to be explained well, to me. But is it even in the states is Workflow Max only a thing in
2: I tried it. Okay. okay, so Zero has this tool they bought called Workflow Max a long time ago. This like ancient practice management software that they've had for I don't know, it must be 20 years. They white labeled it as zero practice manager and it's total crap and it hasn't been improved in years and years there's firms using it i know in australia and new zealand but this is probably the most obvious thing that the new ceo could do to streamline <laughs> <Zero's> <laughs> so I, offerings. this
0: is why like me being outside of the zero world i always thought it was like this competitive advantage they had in their regions that you know, as as intuit with QuickBooks Online account and TurboTax has in the U.S. region, I always no. thought that was
2: a competitive advantage for them. No, no, no. it's ter- it's not good. Oh. It's not a good. It's not good <laughs> software. I tr- it's it's really bad. If you tried it, you would be shocked. I mean, it it was good twenty years ago. Let's say that, right? <laughs> okay, or ten years ago. I don't know. I mean, I lose track of time. It hasn't been that long, but
0: well, this is why we need to clarify this story because it looks. <laughs> And the, the bad thing is, the headline of the article, this was out of the Zero's blog, it says, Zero announces future plans for
2: Workflow Max. So it seems like there's going to be like new functionality in there. Well, no, I think they that was the spin. The future plans are we're going to kill this. Yes, exactly. Because it's on but their the, blog. The headline,
0: the, the, yeah. they titled the article Future Plans. <laughs> All
2: right, I got one more to take us out. And I think yeah, this yeah. is relevant to the discussion about AI, uh, which is hey, the big four aren't afraid to use AI. PwC has introduced an AI chatbot for 4,000 lawyers to speed up work. The project will be delivered through a 12-month partnership with AI startup Harvey. Uh, This is 4,000 PwC lawyers in over 100 countries. They're going to get access to the technology. It is meant to speed up work from due diligence or regulatory compliance to broader legal advisory and legal consulting services. The firm said it's also looking to extend the use of the service for its tax practice. Companies across industries are testing the promise of generative AI to supercharge efficiency. Here's a quote from Carol Stubbings, the global tax and legal leader at PwC UK. Harvey's AI solution marks a huge shift in the way that tax and legal services will be delivered and consumed across the industry. So the smart people at PwC think that AI is going to make a big change. Uh, And legal is actually one of the greatest use cases right now, being able to analyze and create language very quickly, I mean, it can, it can write contracts. Give it a try. Sign up for ChatGPT and ask it, you know, write me an operating agreement with these terms and give it bullet points. Um, I, ha- I actually I need to put a will in place because I'm going on a, a trip overseas and I've never had one in place, right? I probably should. I mean, it's just like absurd that I don't. And I, I asked it to help me. And it started asking all the questions that a, a lawyer would ask me. Like it really made me think. It's fantastic for doing brainstorming and research. Uh if you're not using it now, you you are already behind. And if you start using it, you're gonna be way ahead of like ninety-nine percent of accountants who aren't. And then you'll be ready when it can do the stuff that you know is really important to us. Like for instance, Microsoft is building in the uh AI, open AI into Excel. So you're going to be able to use OpenAI on an Excel workbook. Just imagine the potential there. And I, mean, I know a lot of auditors. Huge. Yeah, right? Like if if you're pulling, I mean, I know a lot of, I'm not an auditor myself, right? But I know that a lot of audit work gets done in Excel, right? You pull the GL into Excel and then you sample transactions that way, right? I, I got it. I hope you are. <laughs> and so you could actually ask... You could, you could put it in as a prompt. You could say, here's what I need to do according to generally accepted auditing standards, help me do this. And the AI is good enough that it can understand that and do that. I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm saying now it's going to be able to do those audit procedures, which is going to be great for staff, right? This is how we solve the problem with auditing being super boring and tedious. We're not going to have to ship it out offshore and we're going to be able to do it here. By turbocharging the auditors we have, but but to train
0: them on like again this goes back to full circle the education, right? By the time our educational institutions teach future accountants to use this software, it's a it's five years from now. There won't be anything, right? So it still doesn't like like I'd I'd much rather instead of sending somebody for thirty more hours of school to go,
2: right? Well, and this is go, why, go
0: spend thirty hours on this.
2: And this is the problem with accounting education because it's it's still very much based on knowledge transfer. So you go into school and you're learning the standards, you're learning the tax rules, you're memorizing a ton of rules. It's it's like rules, rules, rules. And if you're good at memorizing, then you do well. But that's not what's going to be important in the future because the AI will be able to give us all that information the, ten times better than a Google search does. Like Google was already disrupting traditional education because you could just go get information at the drop of a hat. Now it's gonna be even easier. And so this is why accounting education is gonna struggle because it's not teaching people how to ask questions. Asking questions and knowing what questions to ask the AI is going to become the most valuable skill in the world. Because if you know how to ask the right questions, you can be a 10X employee, you can be a 20X employee, you can be a 100X employee. If you don't know how to ask the right questions, you're useless in the future. And that's why actually liberal liberal arts educations that teach people to think critically and teach them to ask questions and to challenge authority and to not just do what they're told and regurgitate what they've been taught, that's really valuable, actually. Um, yeah,
1: I, I totally agree. I mean, I, I see that same thing with even people who are beyond the early years of accounting and people who are trying to start firms because... I run into this a lot where people reach out and they ask me questions about like CFO services or we want to provide advisory services. And I ask, OK, what are you doing? And I realize like, wow, you really don't know how to think critically um, because that's what the whole nature of advisory is, is you trying to look at whatever situation or circumstance the, you know, this business is trying to navigate. Now you have to think outside the box and come up with some recommendations or suggestions, and I think that there are a lot of people in the accounting field who just were taught the gap rules but never taught to really think analytically. So they're not able to add that value. And yeah, ChatGPT is going to replace the regurgitation of the rules and the people who are going to really win are the people who know how to look at the rules and think forward and think analytically.
2: It's well said. So when you
0: talk about uh, employees being able to 10, 20X, Maybe not so fast because I saw an article they surveyed <laughs> HR leaders and one third of HR leaders said they weren't planning on policing employees' use of GP- GPT, right? Yeah. But that tells me two thirds are planning <laughs> to police employee use oh, of chat GPT yeah. at companies.
2: I know. And those companies are going to be left behind. It's, yeah. it's so stupid not to give access to your employees to do this stuff. Oh, and we'll have to talk on a future episode about this. Like, what does this do to the timesheet and hourly billing, (laughs) right? Like, if ChatGPT makes me 10 times faster, do I build 10 times less? I mean, this is going to be the end of the timesheet. It has to be. Like, otherwise, this is it. This is it, because it makes you that much more productive. So, Terrell, it's been great chatting with you. If our listeners want to follow you online, where should they go?
1: Best places to follow me on LinkedIn is Terrell A. Turner, CPA on LinkedIn. David, how about you?
0: I'm just on all the socials at David Leary. And continue. Now people have instead of saying I'm not a bot, they've been saying I'm not ChatGPT. That's what people have been sending me messages.
2: <laughs> but there's no way to know. Like I said, you could just query ChatGPT. Uh, please compose a LinkedIn invite to David Leary that will <laughs> inspire him to accept my connection request. And then, you know, make sure that you say you're not a bot. <laughs> although I think the new rules will prevent it from doing that. Cause it, it, it doesn't want to help you lie. It's, it's, it's got guardrails in place. I tried to, I tried to ask it like, um, you know, how, what's the best way to lie on my timesheet? It wouldn't, it wouldn't do it. It said, you should talk to your manager about the expectations.
0: <laughs> That's pretty funny.
2: Yeah. And how do you do you, Blake? And, and I am at Blake T Oliver. Follow me on Twitter and LinkedIn And follow us on YouTube, Cloud Accounting Podcast. Subscribe, and you'll get to know when we go live. Thanks, everyone who has joined us. It was great having you here with your commentary and questions. We'll see you again next week.
0: Bye, everybody. Time for the classifieds. ClientHub automatically sends your clients a task for each expense or deposit marked as uncategorized in QuickBooks. Your team will save hours of time, and the best part, that it's free. Introducing the free ClientHub Hub recategorized plan. Client Hub is bringing the freemium business model to accounting apps. They are so confident that you, your team, and your clients will love the free recategorized plan that will lead you to implement all the features of the award-winning Client Hub into your firm's workflows and communications. Using ClientHub in your workflow is a guaranteed ROI, especially since it is free. To schedule your demo, go to ClientHub.app. That's ClientHub.app. Is it possible to scale your firm while significantly reducing your workload so you can spend more time with your family? That's what Marie Phillips did when she tripled the revenues of her multi-seven-figure firm thanks to Future Firm Accelerate. Designed for busy firm owners, Future Firm Accelerate gives you the system, training, coaching, and the community you need to systemize your firm so that you can scale it while working less. The program is built around founder and CPA Ryan Lozanis' six-part Future Firm Framework, which he used to scale and sell his own firm, Zen Accounting, to a major international organization in just five short years. To learn more and join over 700 other modern firm owners scaling their businesses, go to www. Dot futurefirmaccelerate.com That's www.futurefirmaccelerate.com This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by UnCat. We don't like uncategorized transactions, but we do like cats, and we love UnCat. Thousands of accountants and bookkeepers have switched from sending spreadsheets of uncategorized transactions to their clients every month to using Uncat. It's easy, UnCat syncs with QuickBooks and gets client responses back fast so you can close the books on time, every time. So if you have clients with uncategorized expenses from the likes of Amazon, Walmart, Target, Costco, and Home Depot, or uncategorized deposits from Venmo, PayPal, Square, Stripe, Cash App, then UnCat is for you. Your clients don't even need to create a login. They get a magic link from UnCat so they can quickly answer your questions and then get back to growing their business. And you're gonna love the price. It's just $5 per month per client. Uncat works with QuickBooks Online, QuickBooks Desktop, and Zero. And as a bonus for Cloud Accounting Podcast listeners, when you start a free 14 day trial, Uncat will send you a $5 Starbucks gift card. So get yourself a latte or frappuccino and then save time and delight your clients with Uncat. Head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash Uncat. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash UNCAT. Are you tired of spending hours manually adjusting your balance sheet and reconciling your accounts every month? Say hello to NetTracker. Automate tedious tasks such as adjustments for depreciation, prepaid expenses, accruals, and deferred revenue. With just a few clicks, selected balance sheet accounts are updated and reconciled. No more stress and hassle every month. NetTracker makes monthly financial reporting a breeze. Try it now with QuickBooks Online, Zero or Sage Business Cloud, and see how much time and energy you can save. www.nettracker.com. That's www.nett-tracker.com. Want to get the word out about your newsletter, webinar, party, Facebook group, podcast, ebook, job posting, or that fancy Excel macro you just created? Why not let the listeners of the Cloud Accounting Podcast know by running a classified ad? Hit the show notes for the link to get more info.